Well, we're going to finish up Mark 13, 3 to 13. I'm going to add verse 14 uh, this morning. But we, we have a tie-in here to, to Father's Day. We've been talking about the kingdom and Jesus teaching on the kingdom and what will the kingdom look like? When is it going to happen? When will Jesus return to set it up? How long will it last? All these questions we'll try to answer this morning. I got first service out there in time for donuts, so we can do this. We can do it. God is uh, revealed himself as a father and as a king. And when he made man in his image and put man in the garden, uh, he told him to be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. And it's really through the institution of marriage and family that man has dominion over the earth. Christians specifically imitate Christ, who reveals the Father to us, right? I mentioned that verse. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. As Christians, we imitate Christ, who's revealed to us the Father. In the best of all worlds, in a good sanctified Christian family, the Father should lead sacrificially like Christ. To lay down his life for his family, meet his family's needs. Pray for his family, lead them to Christ, conduct worship in the family. In fact, our family is like a little kingdom. It's one of my favorite things about being a dad is it's kind of, it's my little kingdom. And we've got my queen and my, my uh, princes and princesses and we're this little family, this little kingdom and we go out and we do good for our king. And we, we show Christ to the world by the way we live when we're doing it right. And when we're doing it wrong, we show Christ to the world by how we repent and how we ask forgiveness. And we invite other people to be in, in this kingdom, not our personal little kingdom. We sang this morning about how it's all about Jesus and not us. And on my bad days, my kingdom becomes the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I get the two mixed up sometimes. And I get too heavily involved in my own little kingdom. Especially when you buy a house and you have a little bit of land and you spend so much energy and time getting your kingdom set up just the way you want. And sometimes we even find ourselves saying, once I get my little kingdom set up the way I want, then I'll be about the business of God's kingdom. You know, but i got to have my house just right and my lawn just right. And there's always one more thing, right? Which is why most towns have a Home Depot and a Lowe's, you know, and they both survive. So all the Father's Day ads really have been about getting Dad a new lawnmower or riding lawnmower or, yeah, so a weed whacker or a riding weed whacker, do they have those? <laughs> like someone's like, yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. So, and yet... This isn't the kingdom we're talking about today. Uh, the kingdom of God, the apostles wanted to know what the kingdom was going uh, to be and when it would happen. There was really no question in their mind exactly what it was going to look like because they had the Old Testament prophecies that Messiah would come and reestablish the kingdom for Israel and all the nations of the world would be blessed through Israel. 
And yet, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how the Christian church, Protestant churches, Roman Catholic church, have all argued over what kind of kingdom we're talking about. Is there a literal kingdom for Israel where we all get to be blessed through Israel? Or has the church replaced Israel and there's no literal kingdom in the future? I think you know where I stand, but I'm kind of kind of finalize and cement this in today so we can move on. The question started in Mark 13, 3 and 4 when Jesus left the temple, left the temple, crossed through the Kidron Valley, goes up the Mount of Olives, and he was teaching about the kingdom. And four of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, were, were questioning him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. And we were wondering last week, well, what things were they talking about? And we answered that question. The things were found in Matthew's version of the same part of Scripture. Matthew 24, going down to verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, he being Jesus, the disciples came to him privately. We know from Mark which four disciples. Tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So these things included the destruction of the temple, included the setting up of the millennial kingdom, or other things we would just have to assume fall in there, but definitely those two things. When will you set up the kingdom for Israel? When will you come back set up the kingdom for Israel? And then what will happen at the end of of the age. So throughout church history, there's been three major interpretations of the answer to this this or these questions. We name them premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. The millennial means a thousand years because the book of Revelation prophesies that there will be a literal thousand-year kingdom literal thousand-year kingdom on earth, unless you take that scripture to be metaphorical and that the thousand years is just a long period of time. The context appears, though, to be literal. The early church was certainly premillennial, meaning Jesus will come back pre, before the thousand-year kingdom. So the premillennial view is that there is an actual kingdom. Israel will be restored. The kingdom of Israel will be restored, but Gentile nations will be blessed through that kingdom. But Jesus will come back. He will actually reign as king on David's throne in Jerusalem. There will be a temple. It'll look a lot like the Old Testament, except it'll be a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity all. That's the millennial kingdom. Certainly the Apostle John was a premillennialist because he wrote Revelation and told us about the millennial kingdom. Certainly Paul was a premillennialist, and I'll show you later how we know that. The early church fathers, including the ones trained by John, were premillennialists. In fact, everybody was a premillennialist. There was no amillennialism. Nobody even thought about it until a guy named Origen came along. Origen's called the father of allegorical interpretation. 
he started reading the Bible in a very spiritualized sense, allegorical sense. Not everything meant what you thought it meant. There were hidden meetings in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit will illumine your mind to tell you what the hidden meaning is. Now, you see a problem with this, right right away? If, if I see a hidden meaning, and you see a hidden meaning, and they contradict each other, then either one of us is wrong, or God is giving us mixed signals, which God is not the author of confusion, and He doesn't lie. Right? So... Traditionally, the Bible's been read in what's called a historical, grammatical sense. Just take the literal language in its historical concept with plain and normal grammar. If plain and normal grammar says we're looking at a simile or a metaphor, then it's a simile or a metaphor. If it's not, then it's not, and you take it at face value. If you take the scriptures at face value... Even the amillennialists who say there's no future kingdom admit that the Old Testament describes a future literal kingdom for Israel. They admit that. There's no argument over what the Old Testament teaches. However, then where does the amillennial position come from? They say that because the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah and hung him on a cross that they've forfeited their promises that God has made to them. They've broken covenant with God, and the church is now replacing Israel as God's favored people. Most amillennialists do say that in the future there is some role for Israel. They're just not sure exactly what that role will be. But this became ingrained and entrenched and cemented into the church at the time of Augustine in the 300s. Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now you didn't have to hide if you're a Christian, no more persecution, it's out in the open. And Augustine, or Augustine, probably of all people that established modern Uh, church theology. He's the key player. We love Augustine. We love reading his works. I'm not saying all that he's written is bad, but I think he got it wrong when it came to his eschatology. I understand he's much bigger than I am and smarter, but I'm not the first person to say he was wrong. So he said the Jews were like Cain and carry a mark on themselves They're cursed, and they're kind of roaming the earth. The reason God hasn't eradicated the Jews off the planet is as a testimony to God's faithfulness and as a warning to the rest of us not to turn our back on God. So that was Augustine's view, and it carried through the church. It was the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1200s. In fact, a church council made it the official teaching and made it illegal to teach anything but so if you're wondering where premillennialism went, there's where it went. It became illegal to even speak of premillennialism. You get to the time of the Reformers, who were concentrating on bringing the Scriptures back to the forefront and say the Scriptures alone have the authority, not the Scriptures plus the Pope plus the Church Councils. The Scriptures have the authority. And we agree with that and nod our heads and affirm it. Sola Scriptura. And because of that, the Scriptures teach that salvation comes 
by faith alone in Christ alone. And so they taught sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christa, in Christ alone. And we affirm that and say amen. It's not faith plus works like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. You don't have to pay off your sins in purgatory before heaven. And you can't pay for the sins of your deceased loved ones after they're gone. And so the Reformation got that part right, but they hung on to amillennialism. They hung on to it. And some of the writings of Luther and Calvin are kind of embarrassing about how they treat the Jews, especially Luther's writings. He would be today considered a flat-out anti-Semitic bigot when it came to the Jews. There's no other way around it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was wrong what he wrote. The guy was very bombastic and flamboyant. But maybe when you're up against an entire religious system, you need to be a little over the top. So we'll give him a pass there. When did the post-millennial view come into play? Right around the time of Jonathan Edwards, right after the Enlightenment, when man was saying, we don't need religion anymore, we don't need the Bible, science will solve everything. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, as a corrective to that view, brought in the post-millennial view. And he said, you know what? We not only can't rely on science, we need the church so much that the church is going to continue to improve and grow and spread. England and America were undergoing the Great Awakening. Evangelists were being sent all over the globe. The heathen were being converted to Christianity. The kingdom is now, and when it's all kingdomized, so to speak, Jesus will come back and reign but we have to set up the kingdom for him. And they really thought that was going to happen. And you could imagine what it was like when our country was founded and these men came together and founded the country on biblical principles that we were like, yeah, this is, this is going to be the kingdom, the Christian kingdom. Onward Christian soldiers who used to sing that in church. That was a big hymn we would sing in my, my Lutheran church growing up. It had a very kind of marching beat to it and you know we're going to lift high the cross and carry the banner of Christ and we're going to convert the nations and God's going to Jesus is going to come back and reign and that was a popular view until about the beginning of the 20th century when two world wars hit and all hell broke loose literally and it wasn't looking so much like we were going to Christianize the whole planet and really, uh, it's only gotten worse since. And I know we grieve because our country is straying so far from its Christian roots, but maybe the lesson in all this is that America was never intended to be the kingdom. It was a good picture of what man could do if he kept his eyes on God and made laws according to God's word. And we had a good run. And I hope, I hope there's reformation, don't you? I hope there's revival. But, you know, getting back to the Reagan era doesn't mean we're back to the kingdom of God, you know. Um, we have to stop pining for days gone by and look forward to the return of the king when we'll really have a kingdom that'll give glory to God. After last week's sermon, I was talking to Matt Donnell, and I told him I would cite him this week, that the millennial kingdom, one of the purposes of it will to demonstrate to the world what government is supposed to to look like. And we're so frustrated because we can't seem to get government right. We get close and then it, it all falls apart. 
really we had a good run as a country, and I really think our country still is the best government in the world. Uh, every day it's getting harder and harder to say that, I know. Um, but even at our best, it'll be nothing like the millennial kingdom. The government will be on his shoulders. He, he'll be the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, almighty God. Right? Finally, we'll see that man was foolish trying to govern himself without God. God himself will come and govern perfectly. And it'll be a thousand year reign. It won't be a flash in the pan. Jesus is going to have a lot of uh, terms. No term limits there, right? Praise God. Amen. Who'd want to run after his candidacy? And yet, we sang this morning that sometimes we do, don't we? It's not about me as if you should do things my way, but we do try to run things down here the way we would like them. And that's our problem. That's always been the chief problem of man. Ever since the fall, they had it perfect. The kingdom of God was perfect. The spiritual kingdom was perfect. The physical kingdom was perfect. And Adam and Eve were tempted to think there could be more. It could be more better, as our kids like to say. More better. And it doesn't get more better. It, it got worse. Adam and Eve rebelled and tried to do things their own way. And sin never delivers what it promises. When we talk about the kingdom of God, then we're really looking at four questions that need to be answered. What kind of kingdom is it? Where will the kingdom be? When will Jesus establish the kingdom? And then how do you get into the kingdom? We'll, we'll take each one of these. Why does it matter? might be a fifth question we need to answer before we answer those other four. If I don't have you on the hook, then you're not going to listen. So why does it matter? Who cares about all this eschatology? Who cares if you're a-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, grist-mill, paper-mill? Um, you know, it's all confusing to me. I'll let the, the smart guys go figure that out over coffee, you know, the eschatology club. It does matter. It really it matters. Not in the sense that we can't fellowship with those who are on-mill or post-mill. I'm not sure there's very many post-mill people out there. But if you find one, let me know. I'd like to meet one. Um, well, plenty of on-mill people out there, though. And we fellowship with them in ecumenical events like um, the Walk to Emmaus. Because we major on the majors and, and we, we major on our soteriology, how you get saved, and our Christology, who Christ is, and our theology proper, who God is. And yet it does matter, our eschatology. Let me give you five reasons quickly why it matters. I touched on some of these last week. They're not going to be on the board. Just, just listen here. Number one, if Israel forfeited the kingdom like Amil teaches, then why can't we forfeit the kingdom if the church replaced Israel because Israel turned its back on God, then hasn't the church turned its back on God over and over in the last 2,000 years? You bet it has. So let's be careful before we're quick to say Israel forfeited the kingdom because of their apostasy. And if Israel could forfeit the kingdom, then can't I personally forfeit the kingdom by my apostasy? Or does the Bible teach that through faith in Christ I can be 
uh, sure of my salvation, even on my bad days? Or do you lose your salvation and get it back and lose it and get it back? I hope not. Is God my Father and then not my Father? Or is He my forever Father? Secondly, we need to keep a consistent hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is your system for interpreting the Bible. If we're going to be literal and grammatical and historical through the whole Bible, but then when we get to the promises made to Israel, we're going to go allegorical. Why not go allegorical anywhere in the Bible? And people do. That's the whole liberal theology movement. You allegorize the virgin birth. You allegorize Jesus' death and resurrection. You allegorize his miracles. Before you know it, you have nothing left of the Bible. It's just an empty shell, just legends and myths, and might as well not even come to church, which is why the large liberal denominations are just about dead. Why come to church? Why would it matter? And the root, the start of liberalism begins with your hermeneutic, how you interpret the Bible. I, I warn against allegorizing the Bible. I really severely, strongly warn against allegorizing the Bible. <laughs> it almost sounded like allegorizing the Bible. Don't do that either. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble when I get home because I'm not supposed to get political in the pulpit. And my, my wife reminds me, don't get political in the pulpit. I don't think you guys mind, huh? Uh, number three, all millennialism breeds anti-Semitism. All millennialism, as we've seen through history, is very cruel to the Jews. I don't think you want to be cruel to the Jews, not just because it's unloving, but because God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless Israel and I will curse those who curse Israel. You say, well, why should the Jews get a special place in the kingdom? I don't know. Why should I get a special place? Why should anyone get a special place? If God chose the Jews, that's his business. Run with it. Lean into it. Be happy with it. Number four, it affects how we do church and how we evangelize. Your eschatology affects how you do church. If we're on mill and the church replaced Israel, then we've got to turn this pulpit into an altar. And you need to start calling me Father Brent instead of Pastor Brent. But please don't, unless you're one of my four children. But even that's kind of weird, Father Brent. The Bible warns that in, in, the, in later days, men will, be de, will demand that you call them father. And here we have an entire wing of uh, Christianity where people call their church leaders father. I don't think that's a, a healthy thing. We have a heavenly father. We don't need to go to confession and say, forgive me, father, for I have sinned. We go to Jesus, our mediator, and say, forgive me, Jesus, for I have sinned. He's our high priest. He's our sacrifice. He's our altar. He's our temple. He, Book of Hebrews say he's everything. It is really all about you, Jesus. So our eschatology does matter. It affects how we evangelize. What if you meet a Jew on the streets and, and tell them, your Bible is the same as my Bible? And they say, well, where is the future kingdom? And you tell them, well, sorry, you forfeited it. Sorry, it's ours now. Well, where is that in the Bible? Well, you kind of have to do a little smoke and mirrors, but it's, it's there. I don't think that's how you want to evangelize Jews. To tell them your 
Jesus is the Messiah. He is returning, and there will be a kingdom for the Jewish people. Finally, we want to glorify God by embracing all of his redemptive revelation and not just throw out the parts that we don't like or confusing to us. Embrace it all. He's given it to us all. This is the mind of God, the mind of Christ. He wants us to have it all, even the eschatology. So if you're not real big on eschatology, at least listen and seek to understand. It is important. If it wasn't, God wouldn't put it in here. But it's in here, so we need to know it. Well, if the Old Testament is pre-mill and the New Testament's pre-mill and the apostles were pre-mill and John, who wrote Revelation, was pre-mill and the early church fathers were pre-mill, then what about Jesus? What was he? You would think that if this entire system was going to be turned on its head that Jesus would have told his apostles, right? It's not what you think. The church is going to replace Israel. He did say, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. But nowhere in Scripture do we have any indication that Jesus taught that there wouldn't be a literal kingdom. In fact, just the opposite is seen in Scripture. Let's look at our passage a little more closely, though, and say, does it sound like it's pre-mill or does it sound like it's a-mill? Okay, so they're asking Jesus about the kingdom, and he says in verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Now, the a-mill folk say that most of these prophecies we're about to read were fulfilled in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed. Why do they say that? Because back in verses 1 and 2, Jesus said, see these stones, not one of them will be left on top of each other. And that happened in A.D. 70. Well, was that all that Jesus was talking about in these passages? So, do we have any record of false Jesuses roaming the planet before A.D. 70. Well, we have some church historians. Uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian. Um, We've got the record of the apostles. We don't really see a lot of people claiming to be Jesus before A.D. 70. Yet, history since A.D. 70 is just rife with false Jesuses. Uh, Just some modern ones to name a few. You've got Jim Jones, who claimed to be Jesus eventually. Very sad, tragic end to that cult. Everyone uh, drinking the poisoned Kool-Aid at uh, Jonestown. Um, I think David Koresh eventually claimed to be Jesus. There's a guy down in South America who claims to be Jesus. He's got like a church of like two or three million or something ridiculous where people think he's actually the Messiah. Worst of all, Islamic theology teaches that there will be a Jesus who comes back who's the real Jesus and that Christianity has the wrong Jesus. Isn't that demonic? I think Jesus, more than anything, is referring to that. If you look at Islamic eschatology, it perfectly parallels Christian eschatology, except everywhere we have a character, they have an opposite character. And they say our character is the false one, and their character is 
the true character. Jesus comes back riding on a white horse. Islamic theology has a 12th imam, or priest, I-M-A-M, riding on a white horse. In their theology, Jesus was just a man. He never died. He went to heaven like Elijah. He will come back, and he will tell Christians that they, and Jews that they got it wrong, and that Allah is the true God, and Muhammad is the true prophet, and Jesus will lead many to saving faith, whatever that means, in the Islamic faith. That's exactly what the end times look like in our eschatology, except it's the reverse. It's backwards. You know, Jesus is the real Jesus. The Antichrist is the false Jesus telling people not to believe in Jesus. So the, these things haven't happened yet before A.D. 70, but they've been happening a lot through history. What about wars and rumors of wars? Were there wars and rumors of wars before A.D. 70? No, there was a war. There was a war. Titus came in and overthrew Jerusalem, sacked the whole city, destroyed it, destroyed the temple, burned it, and then removed it brick by brick, stone by stone. But since then, there's been all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. All that has to happen before the kingdom is set up. And it's still happening, so I don't think the kingdom's been set up yet because we still have wars and rumors of wars. In fact, they seem to be coming with more frequency now. And the entire uh, Middle East and surrounding areas is just a powder keg. It just seems like it's gonna, it could go off any second. So unstable. What about... Um, Nation rising up against nation. Kingdom rising up against kingdom. Again, that is still going on. That did not happen before AD 70. Earthquakes and famines, that's been with us all along. What is Jesus trying to tell us here? He says these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Back in verse 7, he said this isn't the end yet. So all these types of things have to happen with greater and greater frequency, just like labor pains, right? They start out slow and, and far between, and then they become closer together with more intensity. That's the, the normal way it happens. I joked at first service, there's a dear family here who had their baby like right away in their car before they got to the hospital. So um, labor pains could go fast, I understand, but the, the normal way it happens is you know, they tell you they're taking her to the hospital, and then like hours and hours and hours later, they're like, she's still only at four centimeters. Oh, poor thing. You know, it's going to be a long labor. So we've been in the middle of a long labor, but we'll know Jesus is coming back when the labor pains increase in intensity and frequency. And I'm sure at many times throughout history, people felt Wow, it seems like wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes are happening with more intensity and frequency. And yet, it seems that's where we are now. I'm not trying to predict that we're close. I am supposed to say from the pulpit, it could be any day, any minute. Be on guard, be alert, Jesus could come any minute. In Mark 13, 9, then Jesus is 
But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Did that happen before A.D. 70 or after? What do you think? Both. Thank you. Both. They were certainly the apostles brought into the synagogues and flogged. I think Paul had like a daily flogging, it seems like. That guy got beat up all the time. Left for dead twice. Were they brought into governors and kings? Uh, Paul was brought before governors and kings. Um, He wanted to be brought before them so he could witness to them. Uh, James Zebedee, the brother of John, was brought in before Nero and was killed. And then they arrested Peter and they were going to kill him too, but God supernaturally broke him out of jail. But he ended up going back in front of the leaders and history says Peter was crucified on an upside-down cross along with his wife and children. He had to watch them be crucified first and then they crucified him after. High price to pay for following Jesus. But this has been going on since AD 70. If you get the voice of the martyrs, it's a hard magazine to read, but it's necessary to read about our brothers and sisters being martyred. You know, maybe easy beliefism would never have happened in America if we didn't keep our eye on what was happening to our brothers and sisters around the globe. This is serious business, what we're doing here in the church, and shame on us when we turn it into carnival games. My wife showed me a quote on Facebook the other night from Spurgeon um, who said, when pastors stop feeding the sheep, we'll get clowns entertaining the, I don't know the rest of the quote, but wow, what a, what a prophetic voice in his day. He saw the church sliding towards irrelevancy. I do know as things get worse and worse for us here in this country, as religious freedom's taken away, that'll put an end to the tomfoolery. There's going to be a price to pay for being a Christian, and we'll all have to count the cost of whether we're truly going to follow Christ or if the church is just our social club that we hang out at. So the amillennialists then say, well, don't Mark 13, 2 and verse 9 along with Matthew 24, 34, mean that Jesus was talking about all these events happening before the temple fell in A.D. 70. So there's the three verses for you. That third one, they say, is like the death nail to premillennialism. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And Really, we should look at that passage in context, but for the sake of time... There's many things in the context of Matthew 24, 34 that have not happened yet. Many things that Jesus prophesied that have not happened yet. So certainly Jesus wasn't necessarily saying that the generation of people he was talking to was the generation he meant. Whenever prophets prophesied, they were sometimes prophesying about the immediate now, and sometimes they were prophesying 
about the distant future. And most prophecies had a near and a far fulfillment. What things did this current generation see that Jesus was talking about? They did see the dismantling of the temple. They did see them being led into the synagogues to be flogged. However, did they see the gospel go to all the nations? No. Did they see wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms against kingdoms, nations against nations, famines, earthquakes, plural, with increasing frequency? No, they didn't see those things. So this generation could also mean the generation that is around when Jesus comes back. Once they see those things start to happen, they will not pass away until Jesus comes back. The this, the pronoun there, doesn't necessarily refer to the people Jesus was talking to in front of him. In fact, the way that seems that the this better fits the generation who sees the beginning of the tribulation. And we haven't seen that yet. I started to explain last week this concept of near-far prophecy. If we were all Jewish and living in Bible times, we wouldn't have a problem with this. This is how prophecy is done. This is how it's always happened. They just expected that when something was prophesied, there'd be a near and a far fulfillment. And oftentimes, the person prophesying didn't know himself which was the near and the far. I used Isaiah 7.14 last week as an example. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Is that supposed to happen now or later? It happened both. Isaiah's wife had a child. Well, was she a virgin? Was it another miraculous virgin birth like Jesus's? No, she wasn't. However, the word in Hebrew for virgin is Alma, which also means young woman. There's another word in the Hebrew which only means virgin in the biological sense. And it's not the word that was used here. So God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired Isaiah to use a word that could fulfill a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Isaiah's wife had a child, but was the government on his shoulders? Was he everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, almighty God? I don't think so. Jesus comes, virgin birth. That's the, the far fulfillment of the prophecy. So doesn't that lead to some confusion, you might ask? Yes, it does. It does. And really, until the far fulfillment happens, then we have the New Testament writers telling us, see, that was the far fulfillment. You have lots of New Testament passages where they quote an Old Testament prophecy that then Jesus fulfilled, and they go, see, that was what the prophet was also talking about. To make matters even a little more confusing, we have this idea called prophetic compression. Sometimes the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment has thousands of years in between, and the prophet squishes it together as if they're happening at the same time. The greatest example 
would be Daniel's 70 weeks, which we're going to talk about a lot next Sunday when we get to the tribulation. But Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9 is perhaps the most detailed prophecy we have in the entire Bible. It's an amazing prophecy because so much of it has already been fulfilled till like the day. It's amazing, that prophecy. And God tells them there will be 70 weeks where each week is seven years. Okay? So each week is seven years. The 69 weeks of the 70 weeks is clearly from Daniel 9 the time between when the old temple gets rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah to the time Jesus comes, Messiah comes. If you take 69 times 7, you get 483 years. And that is exactly the amount of time between when Artaxerxes gives the decree that the Jews can rebuild their temple and the week Jesus has his triumphal entry. At first it doesn't look like it is, and then you realize that the Jews ran on a lunar calendar. Their months were based on the lunar cycle, and our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, is what? It's a solar thing. And if you reconcile the two, it comes out exactly right. You know, rebuilding of the temple, Jesus comes. Well, then what's supposed to happen next? There's one more week. There's 70 weeks in the prophecy. Well, the 70th week doesn't start until the tribulation starts. And so we're still waiting for the 70th week. And it's been over 2,000 years. And yet, if you read Daniel 9, it's like it just goes weeks 1 through 69 and then 70, as if it was all just going to happen one after the other. And that's the way prophecy goes. They don't say... And then some time passes, you know. It's quite normal. So it's not like we're trying to squeeze current events into prophecy where they don't fit. It's really the way that it it happens, this prophetic compression. All right, so let's go back to Jesus' prophecy. Mark 13, starting at verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Has that happened yet? No, but it's getting close, really close. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Did that happen yet? Yes. Has, is it still happening? Yes. There's, there's a compression there. Don't worry about what you're going to speak. The Holy Spirit will tell you. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's story after story after story of martyrs being like burned at the stake. And, the, and they, they say the most amazing things as the fire is being lit. They have such peace. And they're not agonizing in, in pain a lot of times. And they keep their testimony. And they're praying that God will forgive them for they know not what they do. Just the way Stephen prayed and Jesus prayed Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. We don't have a lot of that recorded before A.D. 70, but we have a lot of it recorded now. This happens almost daily in Muslim countries where 
Muslim families turn in a Christian convert in their family to the authorities because they're embarrassed and shamed by this, this Christian in their family and because the Muslim authorities will wipe out your whole family and village if you don't. So it's like, you know, do I turn in dad or do I keep it a secret? You know, and some people just turn in their family. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. That's certainly a reference to if you keep your testimony to the end of your life, you'll be saved. So you have all this going on, and it's kind of hard to tell if it's before AD 70 or after AD 70, if it's modern prophecy or if it happened back then. And then all of a sudden, Mark 13, 14 just hits you in the face but when you see the abomination of desolation, that's not the abomination. Okay, we're, we're, we're not there. It may feel like the end times to you, but we're, we're not there. The abomination of desolation refers to an event when something is in the Holy of Holies that should not be. Something like it happened during the intertestamental period between when Malachi gives the last prophecy and Jesus comes. There was this time when um, somebody slaughtered a pig on the, on the ark, on the mercy seat. That's bad, right? Yeah, no, no, no pig, no bacon, right, for the Jews? So slaughtering a pig is bad. You know, a lamb is what's supposed to be slaughtered, not an unclean animal like a pig. But that's not the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about and now Jesus talks about. What is supposed to happen is in that last week of Daniel's prophecy, in the 70th week, so that's a seven-year stretch, the Antichrist will bring peace to the Middle East, the temple will be rebuilt, he'll allow sacrifices to happen, and then halfway through the week, the... the uh, seven years, at the three and a half year mark, he will set himself up to be worshipped as God. Now that's an abomination of desolation for Antichrist to call himself God. And in parentheses, we have this interesting clause, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. What this means is that the writers of the Gospels understood that these things were not going to happen in their lifetime. And future readers need to look up and find out what the abomination of desolation means. Remember, this is an oral history culture. They talked and told stories about Jesus and what Jesus taught. It wasn't until it looked like the original eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and resurrection were going to all die off that they decided we better write this down. And so they're saying, let the reader understand. Let future readers understand. We get the impression that the writers of Scripture did not necessarily think that this was going to happen in their lifetime. extra microphones today. So what kind of kingdom then was Jesus talking about? That's really the big question. 
Because the Amil people say that this is the kingdom, the church is the kingdom, Jesus is reigning from the right hand of God through the church. The pre-mill people are saying, no, 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 no. This, this, the church isn't the kingdom. The church is just the church. The physical kingdom's coming later. But there is a kingdom now. It's a spiritual kingdom. Oh, aren't you just playing with words? No, we're not. Look at the scriptures. In John 18, 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I think that crushes the Amil position. But the Amil people might say, Aha, see, there isn't going to be a literal physical kingdom in the future. In Luke 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And he said the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Well, how do we reconcile this? The spiritual kingdom comes first. Those Pharisees he was talking to were not going to see the physical kingdom But what kingdom were they thinking about and always thinking about and only thinking about? The physical kingdom. Messiah will come and set up a kingdom. And of course, we'll be the important people in that kingdom because we're the religious leaders. What did Jesus' apostles think was going to happen? Just a physical kingdom. And oh, by the way, can we sit on your left and your right in the kingdom? And so Jesus had to clear up this entrenched myth that the physical kingdom comes first or that the physical kingdom is the only kingdom. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and asked about the kingdom, what did he tell him? How to get in the kingdom? Do you have to pay your way in? Do you, uh, you, know, you have to be born again. He's like, well, how do I do that? I can't physically crawl back into my mother's womb, can I? And it's like, no, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. You have to be born again. So does that mean there's only a spiritual kingdom? Do we not live in a physical realm, and yet we're spiritual and physical? You see, at the, when God created the universe, God is spirit. He created a physical universe. He was already reigning before there was a physical universe. He reigns over the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Adam and Eve lived during the time when the spiritual realm and physical realm were in perfect harmony with God. When they rebelled against God, did they die spiritually first or physically? Spiritually. They didn't die physically for another 900 years. 900 or 600 Eight something, thank you. We'll just split the difference. Yeah, seven fifty. Um, and then the the physical creation was cursed. Before Jesus can come back and restore the physical kingdom, he needs to restore the spiritual kingdom. Otherwise, what's the point in having a perfect physical kingdom if it's filled with rebels? Jesus prophesied in Ezekiel that he will have to come and put the law of God on our hearts so you won't need outside pressure to make you obey the law. 
you'll want to obey the law in, internally. And isn't that what happened to you when you converted? The love of God filled your heart and now you have this desire to obey Him and serve Him and read His Word and trust in Him. So there will be a physical kingdom, but the spiritual kingdom comes first. So in a sense, there's a spiritual kingdom right now. There's always been one. In fact, there's two spiritual kingdoms, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air for a time. That he's defeated on the cross, he will finally be defeated in the last battle. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire, destroyed forever. All right, so after all this teaching about the kingdom then, did Jesus ever tell them there was never going to be a physical kingdom? No, on the contrary, look at Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts, which records for us the beginning of the church. Acts 1, 3, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So what was Jesus doing for the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension? What was he doing? Teaching about the kingdom. So he's doing all this teaching about the kingdom. And if you would think that the teaching included the church replacing Israel, he would have taught that. That would have been a good time to teach. That, sorry guys, there isn't going to be a literal kingdom as the Old Testament prophesied. We as a people blew it. We're going to build the church of Jew and Gentile and they're going to replace Israel. That would be the time to teach that. And yet, after all that teaching, look what the disciples asked him right before he ascends. Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And did Jesus say, you fools, I told you, Israel's not getting a kingdom. No, what does he say? It is not for you to know times or epochs, epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Meaning, it is going to happen, but I'm not telling you when. In fact, he says that he doesn't even know, only the Father knows. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. When will the physical kingdom come? After the gospel goes to the remotest parts of the earth. Has it gone there yet? It's getting really close. It's getting really close. With modern technology and the mission movement and Bible translation, we're, we're getting there. I'm excited about people going into unreached people groups because it seems that once the unreached people groups are reached, Jesus will return. Paul himself expected a physical kingdom. In Romans 11, and maybe this is the passage that will really nail it home for you, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too 
Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. If you skip to verse 25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The reason it looks like there's no kingdom for Israel right now is it's a temporary hardening of Israel's heart. Paul said to bring the Gentiles in, and he also says in this passage, to make the Jews jealous of God blessing the Christian church. And many of Messianic Jew have put their faith in Jesus because of that jealousy, and they see the blessing of God on the Christian church. But then Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, meaning Israel, they're enemies for your sake because they're persecuting Christians and converts to Christianity. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Which fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who God made those promises to. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't call and choose and elect and then unelect. He doesn't make promises and then break promises. He doesn't give gifts and then take them back. So to summarize then, there's two kingdoms, a spiritual kingdom and a physical kingdom. Both kingdoms were corrupted at the fall, but Jesus is going to redeem both of those kingdoms. First the spiritual then the physical reign for a thousand years, and then at the end of the thousand year reign, Satan's unchained, and there's a, a huge battle at the end. God wins, of course. And we all win with him, those who are believers. And then he's going to destroy the old heavens and old earth and create a new heavens and new earth. And then the spiritual kingdom and the physical kingdom will finally be back to its state of perfection. So here's how it all unfolds. Next slide. We are in the church age. I believe that the scriptures teach, according to Paul in in Thessalonians, that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. All right, so that means I'm pre-mill, pre-trib. Pastor Andy's pre-mill, pre-trib. I think Nathan's pre-mill, pre-trib. Not sure yet. Just want to be different. Nobody's leaving, so I didn't offend anyone. Then Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. He sets up the millennial kingdom. He finally defeats Satan. There's the great white throne of judgment. And then we spend eternity with him in the new heavens and new earth. Good story, huh? Awesome story. Read it again. Read it again. I love this story. I'm in it. You're in it, I hope. You're in it somewhere. And we don't know when step two is going to happen, when the church age ends and Jesus returns. But he says, be ready, be alert. You do not know the appointed time. So how do you be alert? And this is where I want to close. Are you in the kingdom? Well, which one? 
first the spiritual kingdom because you're not getting into the physical kingdom unless you're in the spiritual kingdom. Nobody should leave this church today not knowing if they're in the kingdom. Lock the doors. Nobody leaves till we know if we're in the kingdom. I got in the kingdom when I was baptized. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I thought I was in the kingdom because I grew up in a church that told me I was in the kingdom no matter what. But I sure didn't live like I was in the kingdom, and I didn't follow the king. And I didn't call him father. I, I got into the kingdom at a Promise Keepers event in Stockton, of all places where I was born and raised. And I heard these words from Dennis Rainey of Family Life Today, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I saw myself in that list. Don't try to guess which word it is. I don't know anyone who's not covetous, so we're at least all in the list there. And I said, oh dear God, I'm not in the kingdom. And I think I knew it all along. You know? And I said, what do I do? And the next verse are maybe the greatest words I've ever heard in the English language. Such were some of you. Oh, I thought to be a such were some of you. I want to be a such were some of you. I can't run from my past, but can it just be something I'm not anymore? Because I was trying to pretend I was never those things. But no matter where, how hard I tried to start over and wash my own slate clean, and we would move to a different city or I would get a new job, I would try to start over. And I'd blow it. Every time I gave myself a clean slate, I would blow it. And I said, I'm, I'm tired of trying to pretend I'm someone... I'm not, but I don't want to be that man anymore. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And I accepted Jesus as my Savior right there. And the transformation was immediate and unmistakable. I came home a new man. My wife can, can uh, affirm it. New Likes, new loves, new hatreds. I hate the things God hates and love the things He loved. Humble, humbler. I don't even think I was humble before at all. Uh, penitent, wanted to lead my family, wanted to love sacrificially. Perfectly? No. You know, I've been growing in grace just like you have. But that's where it started. And so I asked this morning is anyone out there? Not in the kingdom. You don't know if you're in the kingdom. And don't leave. I'm going to stand here at this pulpit and come talk to me. I'll tell you how to get in the kingdom. All right? Don't deceive yourself into thinking you're there because your family's in the kingdom or you come to church. 
know for certain if you're in the kingdom or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, happy Father's Day to you. We To call you Father is amazing to us. It's everything to know we're in the kingdom and we're children of God. Lord, I pray for that person here today who doesn't know they're in the kingdom, that they would know by putting their faith in Christ and in Christ alone, turning from their sin and trusting you, walking with you, obeying you, and keeping their eyes fixed on you. Lord, do another miracle today like you've been doing. And you'll receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.